welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, On the Media, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, NPR, Countdown, and Rachel Maddow. As you may have noticed, we were off the air last week. What have we missed? Well, I find out, of course, I'll just bring out a mug and have a, a little standard sip of some delicious grain alcohol. NBC News has learned that President Obama has tapped federal appeals court judge Sonia Sotomayor. <laughs> Obama tapped who? But I thought, but I, why can't Democrats keep it in their pants? federal appeals court judge Sonia Sotomayor as his first nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh. That makes so much more sense. Oh! I would totally hit that as my Supreme Court nominee. So our new potential Supreme Court Justice is Sonia Sotomayor. 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 You know, we're all learning to pronounce her name. Please, I'll, I'll, I'll correct this for everybody. The, the correct pronunciation is Sotomayor. Unless you're a Republican, and then I believe it's pronounced Sotomayor. <laughs> So now we have the pronunciation. What else do we need to know? She'd be the first Hispanic on the court and only the third woman. What does the nomination of Judge Sonia Sotomayor mean to Latinos? Is there <clears throat> political peril for Republicans opposing the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice? Would she have been picked if she were not an Hispanic woman? I doubt it. There was a Supreme Court justice, Benjamin Cardozo, but he had a Portuguese background. His family was Jewish, and there was some question about whether he'd be the first Hispanic. What if I am uh, uh, an Asian-American employee with a Latina employee? Employer, and I have a case. It's just absurd to say that Hispanics have a double identity. They're both Americans and Hispanic, whereas white people are just white. A Latina empathizing with the Latina employer shouldn't side against the Asian American employee. When will the Latino community give justice to their Asian underlords? <laughs> Well, that's television coverage. It's inherently superficial. Let's just check the news weeklies and see if they've had time to process the information and come up with something a little bit more. Oh, oh. <laughs> Latina justice. Oddly enough, that was a television pilot I starred in with Maria Cachita Alonso back in. We were going we to be the next Jake and Fat Man. By the way, anybody who knows anything about justice knows that it is muy blind. <laughs> So Sotomayor, clearly a Latina woman, what effect will that have on her opposition? My question is, does she really understand what America's about? Excellent question for the American-born judge. Hmm. Does she understand? Her parents were both immigrants from Puerto Rico. Her father died when she was just nine. Her mother was a nurse. She grew up in a public housing project in the Bronx, Bronxdale, where she talked as a child of trying to avoid the drug dealers in the stairwells. Well, she might not understand America, but she understands what Lifetime movies about America are all about. <laughs> Holy <laughs> Is that her life story, or did Oprah create her in a focus group? <laughs> But the fact remains, Sotomayor has made comments about how being a Latina woman might help her be a better judge than your standard white male. And she does belong to La Raza, although that group is pretty much the same as the NAACP is for blacks and B'nai B'rith is for Jews, or the B'nai AACP is for black Jews. <laughs> I'm looking at you, former Charleston Sheriff Reuben Greenberg.
With the choice of federal judge Sonia Sotomayor to fill Justice David Souter's vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, President Obama seems to have found an unsinkable nominee. An inspiring personal biography, a long history of judicial even-handedness, presumed dependability on the litmus test issues nobody can actually speak aloud, and, not insignificantly, an Hispanic female twofer. But never mind Sotomayor's qualifications, in the weeks leading up to her confirmation hearings, she will be subjected to public evisceration. Tom Goldstein, a partner in the law firm Aiken Gump and founder of SCOTUS Block, says any high court nominee is but fuel for the politics industry. No matter how principled, thoughtful, smart, and qualified the nominee, the other side will immediately paint them as an activist, outlier, outside the box, unprincipled person hell-bent on destroying the Constitution. But there was a bonus this week because the likes of Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter and even former Speaker Newt Gingrich played the racism card. They suggested that Sotomayor is a reversed racist based on a remark she made some years back. Tell me about that. In a speech that was converted into a law review article at Berkeley, she said that it's my hope that uh, a Latina judge will make a more wise decision than a white male judge, something to that effect. And she's really talking about the simple fact that we are the sum of our experiences. And someone who has lived a different life from a upper-middle-class white male has been through more, has seen more, can add to the discussion. Anybody can have one sentence in their life kind of plucked out of context and made into a lot more. You could line that up with a half dozen cases where she's ruled against the discrimination claims of African-Americans and Hispanics and realize that she's not deciding cases on the basis of her race. This is exactly like the opposition research that uh, occurs during political campaigns. Political operatives poring over reams of material looking for a gotcha. It's in fact exactly like that because they want to put them up on television advertisements. And, and just to be clear, this is not a unique criticism of the ideologically engaged right. This was just as true when John Roberts was nominated and Sam Alito was nominated. And it's deeply unfortunate because it's you know, not just wrong for the individual, but it undercuts the integrity of the federal judiciary. Okay, now here's one difference between a Supreme Court nomination and a political campaign. In a political campaign, both camps get to go at each other, and the the candidate is perpetually on the stump, putting his best foot forward. In the case of a judicial nominee, they more or less just sit there mute for uh, six weeks throughout the process until they finally get to testify before the the Senate Judiciary Committee. How does that change the the media dynamic? It is terribly unfair to the nominees. Sonia Sotomayor, by tradition now, doesn't get to respond to those critics. Now, does that mean that the, the White House and she are totally powerless? No, not at all. They can find surrogates. They arrange calls. There was a call yesterday with the media with people who agree with their position, and they can get their views out there. But the public, when this is a claim about the individual, about the nominee, and it's something so jarring and serious that the person is a racist, the public in the sort of political campaign mode expects to hear from the individual, from her mouth, what she meant. And it's really not used to and not adapted to the weird context of a nomination that actually it's not going to be her. So those words from her are going to sit out there in that YouTube clip uh, and the public won't hear from her for another six weeks. Yeah, there's one last wrinkle to this, and, and that is, barring the discovery of bodies uh, dug up from underneath uh, Sotomayor's porch, <laughs> she's going to be confirmed by the Senate. She's a you know relatively uncontroversial nominee. Tell me again, what's the point of all this this frenzy? The point of it is fundraising. The point of it is for these organizations on the left and the right to justify their existence. We're not talking about the big questions about how expansively to read the Constitution or whether there's a right to privacy that involves an abortion right, those sorts of things. So there doesn't seem to be a good point. If it's true, as you assert, that this process occurs largely to give a raison d'etre 
and a fundraising detra to polarizing political organizations. Should news organizations not keep that in mind before they rush to report the most extreme allegations and overheated rhetoric? I think that they should. Uh, They shouldn't be dismissive when there are real issues about a nominee. Even if that's brought to your attention by an interest group, that's perfectly fine. But you have to just put on a filter of common sense that lets you know whether or not this is a serious charge in a very serious context or is just somebody who has set their hair on fire in order to draw attention to themselves. And here so far, it seems much more the latter than the former. I just want you to know, Tom, that I don't really believe that fundraising detra is is a word in any language. (laughs) No, sir. You're going to be on the radio saying that. (laughs) Tom, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Tell me now, baby, is it good to you? And can you do to you the things that I do? I can take you hard. The Supreme Court executioner to retire. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. After over 60 years of service, Supreme Court High Executioner Arthur Hayes is calling it quits at the end of the month. The folksy, soft-spoken Hayes told reporters the job of decapitating federal criminals has been a great honor, but the time has come when he can no longer handle the physical demands of wielding the double-sided Supreme Court axe. I really love this job, but it's time for a younger man to do the Supreme Court's killing now. Hayes also expects to spend a fair amount of time engaged in his most beloved pursuit, the wholesale slaughter of largemouth bass. Doyle Redland for the Radio News. I worry over situations. I know we'll be all right. Perhaps it's just imagination. Day after day it reappears. Night after night, my heartbeat shows the fear. Ghosts appear and fade away. Alone between the sheets only brings exasperation. It's time to walk the streets. Smell the desperation At least there's pretty lights Though there's little variation It nullifies the night From overkill Uh, First off, the conservatives are just unhinged. I I don't love that term, but in this case, they've really earned it. Uh, Yesterday, we told you how Tom Tancredo called her the Latino KKK, the equivalent, that she had joined a group that was the equivalent of the Latino KKK, La Raza. Uh, today, G. Gordon Liddy goes crazy over it. Uh, Rush Limbaugh does. Everybody's calling her a racist. And the Republican leadership is trying to calm them down, but they can't get a handle on them. They're absolutely out of control. Uh, and here comes G. Gordon Liddy first. It's clip number one, and he's going to tell us, I mean, so many outrageous things. Try to keep up, and then we'll talk about them afterwards. I understand that they found out today that, uh, that uh, Ms. Sotomayor is a member of La Raza, which means in, in illegal alien, the race. And uh, that should not surprise anyone because uh, she's already on record with a number of racist uh, comments. Uh, if a white male 
uh, were to have made comments like that, uh, the nomination would be probably withdrawn by now. Well, let's, uh, let's hope that the, the key conferences uh, aren't uh, when she's menstruating or something, or just before she's going to menstruate. That would really be bad. Well, you know, this is, it's interesting, this is deeper, though, than just uh, sexism or racism or whatever. And it's way deeper than liberal or conservative. Yeah, but, she, this, but she is the one who's, who's bringing all these things in here. All right, now, uh, you know, during the uh, commercial break, you and I were chatting together, and uh, uh, I think you made an excellent point. I doubt um, it. There's all this praise for the fact that... Uh, Obama has chosen an Hispanic uh, because there hasn't been a Hispanic on the Supreme Court before. Uh, and also a woman, and, all the, and she's only like the third woman. And uh, everybody is cheering because uh, Hispanics and females have been, quote, underrepresented, end quote. And as you pointed out, which I thought was uh, quite insightful, the Supreme Court is not designed to be and should not be a representative body. Uh, we have a House of Representatives. You know? uh, the Supreme Court isn't supposed to be uh, in any way like that. I love that he thinks he's clever. You know, House of Representatives, they're supposed to be representative, nothing else. Just because they're called the House of Representatives doesn't mean that everything, other parts of the government cannot be representative. Does the Senate have to, by definition, not be representative? It's ridiculous. Look, uh, now, if you flip the shoe on the other foot and you said to G. Gordon, hey, you know what? You're right. There's no reason the Supreme Court has to be representative of what's America. Uh, so we're going to put nothing but nine black women on the Supreme Court. Are you down? But wait a minute. It's okay if it's unrepresentative if they're all white males. But all minorities, oh, the racism, terrible, I can't believe it, et cetera, et cetera. Huh, interesting. My guess is he would not react positively to that. And then, I mean, did you notice that he called Spanish, he said, instead of saying in Spanish, he said, you know, what they say in illegal alien. You see, Spanish is spoken throughout the world uh, by people who live in those countries. For example, Spain. And when they speak Spanish in Spain, uh, they're not speaking the language of illegal aliens. You schmuck. Okay, let alone, of course, Mexico and, <laughs> and dozens of other countries, but I, obviously, G. Gordon Liddy can't get that through his head. And then, of course, you know, I thought they were more subtle than this. I don't know why I thought that I've been listening to them for so long, but uh, he could, just comes out and says, yeah, I better not get a case uh, while she's menstruating. How old is that? You know, that thing against women, oh, you know, when they're menstruating. Oh. So that's why we can't have women in any important positions if you listen to idiot sexists like G. Gordon Liddy. By the way, this guy is a convicted felon who tried to undermine our democracy. What, what nerve he has. This is also the same guy who said you should shoot federal agents in the head. Okay, and he's supposed to be representing uh, and standing up for American principles? Please. said it before, I am a member of a persecuted minority, white males.
Last week, my people were marginalized even more when President Obama nominated Sonia Sotomayor for the Supreme Court. There wasn't a single white male on his shortlist. That sends a terrible message to all the little white boys out there who dream of one day having their judicial reputation destroyed by the media. <laughs> but Sotomayor isn't just a Latina. She is also a racist. Just ask any old white man who supports a border fence. I'm telling you, she appears to be a racist. The second problem and the more important one, I think, is does she believe in reverse discrimination against white males? And it appears she does. She has put down white men in favor of Latina women. Here you have a racist. You might, you might want to soften that, and you might want to say a reverse racist. Exactly. <laughs> a reverse racist. We call it that because it's the opposite of the way you're supposed to be a racist. <laughs> this whole controversy started over something Sotomayor said in a 2001 speech, quote, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experience would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. Wrong! <laughs> white male judges always reach the right conclusion until the DNA evidence exonerates the defendant. <laughs> but as bad as it is to go back to the old painful stereotypes, white men can't be judges. Laotians don't take care of their hubcaps. <laughs> that one's true, actually. <laughs> Sotomayor brings up the most despicable discrimination against white males out there, that we have no life stories. Sure, Obama's life story shaped him. Same goes for Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. And now everyone's saying it about Sonia Sotomayor. Notice how no one ever talks about the unique journey of a white male like Mitt Romney. <laughs> you don't think... You don't think his judgment and empathy were forged by long, hard days working at his family's mayonnaise farm? <laughs> plus, plus, if we conservatives try to stand up to this reverse racism, we are going to lose crucial Latino votes just as GOP leaders were beginning their outreach to Hispanics. Many have even asked their gardener what his name is. Here comes another song about Mexico. Well, I just can't help myself. I lost my old lady. Got my lures, got my bobbers, now I'm gonna go. Cantinas, talk to senoritas and drink warm beer. And here comes the same old. Sonia Sotomayor has kept up a busy schedule introducing herself to members of the Senate. Confirmation hearings for the President's Supreme Court nominee are scheduled to start July 13th. Today, we're going to hear about the importance Sotomayor attaches to her ethnic identity. She describes herself as New Yorican, the daughter of Puerto Ricans who moved to New York. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports on how that identity was shaped and how it has influenced Sotomayor's life. Sonia Sotomayor has called this South Bronx stretch of Southern Boulevard the center of her childhood universe. She came here to eat Puerto Rican snow cones and see Spanish movies. She and her cousin sat at the window of her grandmother's apartment and made faces at the passengers on the elevated number five train. Sotomayor has said she never thought of herself as a minority back then, since most of the neighborhood was Hispanic. I grew up in that, right in that block. So I hung out on these benches, 
Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. is also of Puerto Rican heritage. He was raised in the same public housing complex as Sotomayor, though says her generation had it better. Maybe when you had a rumble, somebody may bring a knife. That totally changed by the time I was a teenager here. A few blocks away is the spot where, in 1999, four police officers gunned down Amadou Diallo, an unarmed African immigrant. All four were acquitted. Diaz is proud this area is now rebounding, but he says a deep distrust remains. People here feel like the judicial system doesn't always work for them. So could you imagine how big that is, a young lady who comes from these developments who is now going to pass judgment with eight other people for the whole United States. Down in New York's Lower East Side, the Grand Street Settlement is a place for elderly Latino men to come for free meals and a game of dominoes. There's also subsidized daycare, after-school programs, training classes, and the director here represents another connection to Sotomayor. My name is Margarita Rosa. And I know Sonia from um, our years together as students at Princeton University. Rosa was a junior when Sotomayor was a freshman, and she says for both of them, moving from New York to Princeton was like going to another planet. They were among just a handful of Hispanics in their early years of affirmative action. They were females at an institution that had just gone co-ed, Catholics where most were not, low-income scholarship students where many came from privilege. Sotomayor has said Princeton changed her. But in that era of civil rights activism, Rosa says Princeton's Latino pioneers decided they would also bring change to the institution. We set out to make our presence felt and the issues of our communities known. Sotomayor joined a Puerto Rican student group. She and others sued Princeton, pushing it to hire Hispanic faculty. They lobbied one professor to teach a course on Puerto Rican history. Rosa says the ideals of social justice that motivated many of the students, including, she believes, Sotomayor, carried over into their professional lives. We really felt, at least I did, that I wanted my life to be about something other than just myself and the size of my bank account. That I wanted to leave a mark and improve conditions for people who are disadvantaged, many who are like me and others who aren't like me. Sotomayor has spoken frequently of her duty to give back to the community, and she's been an active board member for civic groups serving low-income minorities. For 12 years, she was on the board of the Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund, now known as Latino Justice. We brought the uh, dramatic case that stopped New York City from holding its city council elections in 1981. President Cesar Perales says while Sotomayor was there, the group argued that New York's district lines were racially gerrymandered. The courts agreed, and New York redrew its districts. This time, lines were much more fair and did not discriminate. And yes, uh, more minorities were elected to the council than there had been in the past. In a speech in 1998, Sotomayor said America has a conflicted attitude toward diversity, embracing it on one hand, yet insisting people live in a race-blind way. This, she said, produces a constant source of tension and means people of color must band together to promote change. Juan Cartagena is another former colleague at the Legal Defense Fund. Sonia's elevation to the court would be an incredible way to demonstrate that a person who embraces that identity doesn't let go of it, that that diversity speaks to and informs all of her life decisions. Cartagena and others say Sonia Sotomayor is grounded, unpretentious, and not one to forget where she came from. A week ago, Margarita Rosa invited her friend to a party for her daughter, not expecting she'd be able to make it, but Sotomayor did. And in her inimitable fashion, she greeted every member of staff, the, you know, the bartender, the person serving the food, the man who was doing security. And then the staff all posed for photos with the woman who may soon become, by some measures, the most powerful Hispanic in the nation.
GOP operative careful scrutiny, yes, a holy war against her, Judge Sotomayor, not unless your name is Rush, Rove, or Huckabee, none of whom votes in the United States Senate. Our fifth story on the countdown, the GOP smear campaign against the Supreme Court judge nominee, morphing into an intra-party war, Republican versus Republican. Two-thirds of party insiders, including Senator Cornyn, RNC Chair Steele, and columnists Charles Krauthammer and Peggy Noonan, all saying enough is enough. The rest responding, it's our party and we'll hate if we want to. Day for the Sotomayor nomination story, the day the Republican Party started to implode again. 64% of those Republican political insiders surveyed by the National Journal saying don't fight the Sotomayor nomination. It is not politically smart. Senator Cornyn of Texas, a member of the Judiciary Committee, telling National Public Radio that it is time for Republicans who are not elected officials, like, say, Limbaugh and Gingrich, to butt out. I think it's terrible. This is not the kind of tone that any of us want to set when it comes to performing our constitutional responsibilities of advice and consent. Neither one of these uh, men are, are elected Republican officials. I just don't think it's appropriate. I certainly don't endorse it. I, I think it's wrong. Republican Party Chair Michael Steele guest hosting Bill Bennett's radio show this morning and repeatedly saying the Republicans should be hailing the historic nature of President Obama's pick for the Supreme Court, adding that the GOP needs to stop slamming and ramming on Judge Sotomayor. Washington Post columnist Krauthammer warning his fellow right-wingers to stop their conservative attacks. Quote, what should a principal conservative do? Use the upcoming hearings not to deny her the seat, but to eliminate her views. The argument should be elevated, respectful, and entirely about judicial philosophy. Peggy Noonan adding that it's time to leave child's play behind, or at least pretend to. Quote, let's play grown-up. When I was a child, that's what we said when we ran out of things to do, like playing potsy or throwing rocks in the vacant lot. You'd go in and take your father's hat and your mother's purse and walk around saying, would you like tea? In retrospect, we weren't imitating our parents, but parents on TV who wore pearls and suits, but the point is we amused ourselves trying to be little adults. And that's what the GOP should do right now. Play grown-up. Close enough for most, unattainable for some. We join megalomania today, already in progress. I don't need lectures from any columnist or any commentator on TV about decorum. The real question here that needs to be asked, and nobody on our side, from a columnist to a TV commentator to anybody in our party, has the guts to ask, how can a president nominate such a candidate? And how can a party get behind such a candidate? That's what would be asked if somebody were foolish enough to nominate David Duke or pick somebody even less offensive. Mr. Bouncy Bouncy, believing Judge Sotomayor is comparable to a former chief of the Ku Klux Klan for her comments about race and gender, presumably also branding Justice Sandra Day O'Connor as the equivalent of a KKK leader. She said something similar to what Sotomayor did. She said it in 1981. In an interview then with the Ladies Home Journal, soon after she was appointed, Justice O'Connor having said, quote, I bring to the court the perspective of a woman, primarily in a sense that I am female, just as I am white, a college graduate, etc. Yes, I will bring the understanding of a woman to the court, but I doubt that that alone will affect my decisions. Oddly, the only real hits on Judge Sotomayor today on this issue coming from the White House itself, which seemed to be behind the curve. Press Secretary Robert Gibbs, possibly not having read the entirety of Sotomayor's remarks from 2001, saying this afternoon that the judge used a poor choice of words when she suggested a Latina might reach a better conclusion than a white male in a given case. He would not elaborate. In an interview with Brian Williams, his boss, the president, did elaborate, making it clear that he has read the entire speech. I'm sure she would have uh, restated it, but if you look in the uh, entire uh, sweep of the essay that she wrote, what's clear is that she was simply saying that her life experiences will give her uh, information about the struggles and hardships that people are going through uh, that will make her a good judge. The president's comments coming at the end of a week of nonstop, albeit baseless, attacks on the nominee, Judge Sotomayor, attacks from all mostly white, mostly male, comers. This is like, hey, Hispanic chick lady, you're empathetic? She says, yep. They say, you're in. 
Is she the most activist nominee in the history of the court? This president who promised to unite the country during the campaign has selected the most divisive nominee possible. As racial allegations surface and controversy spreads over her reputation, what's the truth about Obama's nominee? She is a Marxist. The quote in the uh, in her yearbook at Princeton is from a socialist. I'm not really certain how intellectually strong she will be. You know, people who are familiar with the workings of the court said that she was combative, opinionated, argumentative. She's not going to be somebody who's going to bring broad intellectual powers. I think you can make the case that she's um, one of those who has benefited from affirmative action over the years uh, tremendously. Maybe so. Did she get into Princeton on affirmative action? One wonders. One wonders. I don't know if this is true or not. This is one uh, well, piece this, of analysis that I heard today. This, she's not that intellectually bright, and she's almost a bully. She just loves to hear herself talk. As a Latina woman, she said, I think as a Latina woman, I'd make better decisions than a white man. It's offensive, it's racist, it's sexist. But it is a racist statement. I mean, that's racist. That's a racist statement. I, I, I I don't like the charges of, well, you're a racist, they're a racist. I, I, very few people are racist. There are racists and they're bad people. And, but it's, most Americans are good, just decent people. And I hate the charges and cries of racism. I think the woman is a racist. She sure sounds like a racist. I think she's a racist. If you belong to an organization called La Raza, in this case, which is, from my point of view anyway, just nothing more than a, a Latino, um, it's a counterpart, it, it's a, a Latino KKK without the hoods and or the nooses, if you belong to something like that, you have to explain that in a way that's going to convince me and a lot of other people that it's got nothing to do with race. Here you have a racist. She's an angry woman. She's got a she's got a, she's a bigot. She's a racist. A woman as a judge makes a blatantly racist, bigoted comment. She is rewarded with a promotion to the Supreme Court. How do you get promoted in a Barack Obama administration? By hating white people. Glenn Beck questioning somebody's intellect. You're wrong when you imprison people turning tricks. And you're wrong about trickle-down economics. If you think that punk rock doesn't mix with politics, you're wrong. You're wrong for hating queers and eating steers. If you kill for the thrill of the hunt, you're wrong about wearing fur. Not hating Aunt Culture, cause she's a cunted cunt. Or you're wrong if you celebrate Columbus Day. And you're wrong if you think there'll be a judgment day. If you're a charter member of the NRA, you're wrong. You're wrong if you support capital punishment. And you're wrong if you don't question your government. If you think her reproductive rights are inconsequent, you're wrong. Here to help prepare us for the coming age of injustice is CNN chief legal correspondent and author of The Nine, Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming back. All right, listen. Thank you, Jeffrey. Have you met Sweetness? Have uh, you yeah, met? No, no, you no, met? No, no. Okay. Rude not to introduce your no, fiance. No, I listen. I don't honestly know what the big deal is about diversity on the court. I feel completely well represented by the eight whites and the five Catholics that are already there. <laughs> why, why do we need any more diversity than that? Well. Some people think, the president thinks, that, that that's not a reflection of the way the country looks, that in fact there are half women, almost half the lawyers in the country are women, so there should be a more accurate representation of the way the country really is. But, but, but does that mean we have to put a racist on the court? She's clearly a racist, No, right? I, I don't think she's, she's a racist. She, how could you think she's not a racist? She hates, she hates I understand, she hates uh, white uh, firemen. No, no, no. The, she the, hates white Connecticut firemen. You're, you're referring to a case where the New Haven uh, Fire Department, they held a test and, uh, for promotions. Yeah. And uh, only white people did well on the test. And New Haven decided, you know what, that's not the, we, we want to look at this test again, redo it perhaps if it was not a fair test. And the white firefighters who uh, did well, sued, and she ruled for the city that the city could redo the test. Right, and she said in her ruling, quote, I would rather have my house burned down than have the fire put out by a white firefighter. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's an accurate quote. 
I don't think that's in the opinion. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Well, I, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> well, that's the general idea of what a, she's it's, saying. It's a, it's a loose paraphrase. It's a loose paraphrase. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I don't... I, uh, does she have the right temperament? I hear that she's got a fiery temperament. I, I, don't, I think that's somewhat exaggerated. You know, women who succeed in men's traditional occupations are often accused of, of being um, domineering or obnoxious. And so you don't I, I think, think she's a hothead? I, that's not let me, my Let impression. me point out something to you, sir. Okay. She, uh, um, she's, she, she's a Puerto Rican, grew up in New York City projects in the 1950s, and that can only mean one thing. She's a shark. <laughs> okay? I, 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 and you know Scalia is a jet. Right. You know Scalia is a jet. And, and, and you're a jet all the way. Right, so, right. exactly. So, right. so um, I, I don't think that necessarily is the case that she is a shark. Does she get, that was, that does was she a, get confirmed? It uh, looks very likely. I mean, there, there are going to be presumably 60 Democrats. Uh, very hard to defeat a uh, nominee with that many of the president's own party. And who's next after this? Who does, who does Obama go for? If he gets this one in, does he go for like a bisexual robot? Who? How far does, how far does diversity? I, I go. think there could be another woman. I'm there afraid. could be another woman. You know, another woman? You know what? How many women are there out there, Jeffrey? Well, you know, look, there have been 110 justices on the Supreme Court. 106 have been white men. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's time to change the change the dynamics a little bit. Dash my dreams again. Thank you so much, Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin is the author of The Nine. Buy nine copies of it. to reach way back into the days of the Clinton administration for an instance in which a Supreme Court nominee did not believe in originalism. That's the conservative legal philosophy which calls for interpreting the Constitution the way it was originally written. In recent years, that philosophy has been dominant. But now, as liberal legal experts await Judge Sonia Sotomayor's confirmation hearings, they are considering their own identity. If conservatives believe in originalism, what do liberals believe in? As NPR's Ari Shapiro reports, liberals are trying to come up with a clear alternative. A few years ago, Slate magazine hosted a contest. Dahlia Lithwick asked her readers, if you don't believe in interpreting the Constitution the way it was written more than 200 years ago, what do you believe in? The left was in this funny defensive crouch where it was saying, whatever we're for, we know we're not for Scalia and originalism, we're for blah, 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 blah. By Scalia, she means Justice Antonin Scalia, the bete noir of the liberal legal establishment and the prime spokesman for the view that the meaning of the Constitution does not change over time. Here he was on this program last year. If you somehow adopt a philosophy that the Constitution itself is not static, but rather it, it morphs from age to age to say whatever it ought to say, which is probably whatever the people would want it to say, you eliminate the whole purpose of a constitution. And that's essentially what uh, the so-called living constitution leaves you with. On Slate.com, Lithwick asked her readers to come up with a counter-argument, and the mail poured in. I think the conclusion was originalism has just got a better agent. They have better PR, and that living constitutionalism just has really lost the PR war and needs probably better representation. That was 2005. Now liberals are back in the fray. There are lots of phrases fighting to be the progressive constitutional standard bearer. 
There's democratic constitutionalism, redemptive constitutionalism, constitutional fidelity, even progressive originalism. Oh, yeah, and there's one more. Here's UC Berkeley law professor Goodwin Liu. We have felled many trees coming up with the term. And then President Obama mentions a single word, empathy. And the entire debate swirls around that word. I view that quality of empathy, of understanding and identifying with people's hopes and struggles as an essential ingredient for arriving at just decisions and outcomes. This is one reason liberals believe they finally have a chance to win this debate. The president is a Democrat who used to teach constitutional law. Reading here from his own book, he said interpretations of the Constitution have always changed over time. Before the ink on the constitutional parchment was dry, arguments had erupted, not just about minor provisions, but about first principles. Not just between peripheral figures, but within the revolution's very core. For the first time in 15 years, the country is evaluating a Supreme Court nominee who does not believe in originalism. Progressive legal scholars have published a pile of books trying to take advantage of this moment. Yale Law Professor Reva Siegel edited The Constitution in 2020. The Constitution is neither uh, an agreement that was made by persons long dead, nor is it something that simply reflects the understandings of living Americans, but in fact it's a living tradition that links the struggles, commitments, and beliefs of Americans past, present, and future. Siegel says judges can't ignore the past, but they can't give it unquestioning loyalty either. Her co-editor on the book is Yale Law Professor Jack Balkin. He argues the Founding Fathers intentionally made some passages of the Constitution very specific, such as the president must be at least 35 years old, and other passages are intentionally vague. They spoke in general terms because they expected that people who came along later would have to do their part. They would have an obligation to continue the project. And Balkan believes that is true constitutional fidelity. I think that's gobbledygook. It's just a kind of a pun on what fidelity means. This is University of Chicago law professor Eric Posner. He does not believe in originalism or in the academic philosophies that liberals are coming up with. They have to come up with a better idea. And instead of coming up with a better idea, I think they're trying to figure out what the PR angle of originalism is and, and how, to, how to duplicate it. Posner believes everyone is just trying to obfuscate the fact that judges are basically political actors on the left and right. Even if the PR campaign works, the courts will not shift anytime soon. The Supreme Court has five solid conservative votes and one new nominee won't change that. But Professor Jack Balkan is not worried. My view of the Supreme Court is sort of like the husband in the French farce. He's always the last to know. Essentially, stop bothering about the Supreme Court. Start thinking about what the Constitution means in the general public. And Balkan says the courts will catch up in good time. Ari Shapiro, NPR News, Washington. My fathers, they have walked this road, and now I know. Yes, didn't they know? There is no great and heavy load, and now I know. Yes, didn't they know? Fa la 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 la, stand on solid ground, on solid ground. Fa la 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 la, stand on solid ground, on solid ground. Across the Arctic face, the amber sun beats down, tint vivid green. I hear it wild and loud, feel it wide and proud. It's always been My fathers, they have looked this way And now I know Yes, didn't they know No clever words we have to say And now I know Yes, didn't they know Fa-la-la-la-la-la Stand on solid ground On solid ground We will begin with rather dramatic developments in the case against President Obama's first Supreme Court nominee. Since even before Judge Sonia Sotomayor was announced as the nominee, critics on the right have denounced her as an activist judge. Now, the word activist doesn't mean the same thing in this context as it does in the real world. Uh, what they're accusing her of is essentially using court rulings to make new laws, to make policy. It's an awkward accusation, and it always has been, because court rulings, by their nature, do make law, they do make policy. But that awkwardness has not stopped conservatives from hurling the phrase activist judge as an epithet for years now. 
In the case of Judge Sotomayor, this clip of her speaking at Duke University in 2005 is being cited as Exhibit A in the evidence that she is an activist judge. All of the legal defense funds out there, um, they're looking for people with Court of Appeals experience because it is Court of Appeals is where policy is made. And I know, and I know this is on tape, and I should never say that because we don't make law, I know. Um, uh, okay, I, I know. I'm not, I'm not promoting it, and I'm not advocating it, I'm, you know. Court of Appeals is where policy is made. The smoking gun. That's the basis for the first big swing against Judge, Judge Sotomayor's nomination. She thinks policy is made from the bench. Law is made in the courtroom. Yeah, and that accusation was cited by the first senator to say that he plans to vote against Judge Sotomayor's nomination. It was Republican Pat Roberts of Kansas. I voted no in 1998. Uh, I did not feel that she was appropriate on the appeals court. Uh, since that time, she has made statements on the role of the appeals court that I think is improper and incorrect made statements on the role of the appeals court that I think is improper and incorrect. We called Senator Roberts' office today to find out what statements of the judges he was talking about. Um, his staff told us that they assume he was referring to those comments at Duke in 2005 that we just played. Unfortunately for Senator Roberts and for any other Republicans who will claim that those comments should disqualify Judge, Judge Sotomayor from serving on the Supreme Court, evidence was unearthed of conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, who is the supposed patron saint of non-activist judges, um, saying essentially exactly the same thing. In a Supreme Court opinion Justice Scalia authored in 2002, he wrote, quote, not only do state court judges possess the power to make common law, but they have the immense power to shape the state's constitutions as well. Want a little more? How about a footnote from Justice Scalia from the same ruling? Quote, the judge, judges of inferior courts often make law, he says. Make law, since the precedent of the highest court does not cover every situation. That's different from what Judge Sotomayor said. How exactly? Swing and a miss on the whole attempted courts make policy scandal. Uh, their swing number two is the claim that Judge Sotomayor cannot possibly be an unbiased arbiter of the law because she has admitted that her ethnicity has an effect on the way that she sees the world and on her decision making. That startling admission was upsetting to Oklahoma Republican Senator James Inhofe, who issued a written statement saying he looked forward to assessing, quote, her ability to rule fairly without undue influence from her her own personal race or gender. Well, fair enough. I mean, imagine a conservative judge like Justice Alito or somebody saying that his personal background would have any impact on his rulings. Imagine that. When I get a case about discrimination, um, I have to think about people in my own family who, who suffered discrimination because of their ethnic background or because of religion or, or because of gender. Uh, and, and I do take that into account. You do? Don't tell Senator Inhofe. Swing number two is another giant miss. And then there's swing number three. President Bush's former brain, Karl Rove, uh, wrote in today's Wall Street Journal, quote, Mr. Obama said he wanted to replace Justice David Souter with someone who had empathy. Empathy is the latest code word for liberal activism, for treating the Constitution as malleable clay to be kneaded and molded in whatever form justices want. There's a certain irony, he says, in a president who routinely praises America's commitment to the rule of law, but who picks Supreme Court nominees for their readiness to discard the rule of law whenever emotion moves them. So when you hear the word empathy, think liberal, activist, lawless, needing and molding. Yeah, empathy. Also, think Clarence Thomas. I have followed this man's career for some time. And he has excelled in everything that he has attempted. He is a delightful and warm, intelligent person who has great empathy and a wonderful sense of humor. Great empathy? A man who has great empathy? So, strike one, she thinks policy is made by courts. Strike two, she'll let her background influence her decisions. And strike three, empathy is evil.
either conservative opponents of Judge Sotomayor have thus far struck out one, two, three, or they're all about to surprise us by revealing that they don't think that Clarence Thomas, Antonin Scalia, or Samuel Alito are fit to serve on the Supreme Court either, which will make for a really awkward next Federalist Society fundraiser. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I'm back. I'm back here live inside the Beltway and border of Washington, D.C. And uh, to give you an idea of why I can't give a detailed uh, description of the trip, I'm just going to list the places we went through. And I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. So let's see how this goes. So we we flew, we landed in Sacramento. So we checked out things in Sacramento uh, for about a day uh, or half a day and then left. And we visited uh, in order... The Jelly Belly Factory in California, Napa Valley Wine Country, Petaluma, the very small town where I was born, Mount Tamalpais overlooking the Pacific Ocean, the Golden Gate Bridge, the big lookout where all the famous pictures of the bridge have been taken, Twin Peaks in San Francisco to get another view of the city, San Jose where we slept, visited the headquarters of Apple Computer Company, went to the Mystery House, the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, Went to the Mystery Spot in Santa Cruz, Yosemite National Park, Lake Tahoe, Park City, Utah, where we went on an alpine coaster, awesome, Grand Tetons National Park, drove through Jackson, Wyoming, saw Yellowstone National Park, went to Rapid City, South Dakota, where we went to the Dino Park, Mount Rushmore, passed by and visited Wall Drug in South Dakota, Uh, can't miss that. Went all the way over to Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin, which is a nutty town. Uh, visited the Upside Down White House, just gives you an idea of the sort, sort of the things they have there. Went by Chicago, where we visited uh, Millennium Park. Drove through and slept in Cleveland. And then finally went to Niagara Falls before coming all the way back down to D.C. This was over the course of eight days and uh, very close to 45 Hundred miles of driving. Whew. All right, so that, that was the whole trip. So who are the big winners? What, what are the best places in the country? This, I, I don't think I should have been surprised about it. I think somebody warned me of this uh, before the trip started. Turns out Jackson, Wyoming is one of the most beautiful places in the country. It's, uh, I described it as we, as we came over the hills and, and saw the, uh, the valley where Jackson, Wyoming is. I de- described it as an enchanted valley. I mean, you can just... Take a look at it on Google Maps or something, and you'll pretty much see what I mean. It's surrounded by mountains. It's a lush green valley with a river running through it. And I can just imagine if you live there, you would uh, you would think you just lived in an enchanted valley where uh, you're protected from the outside world by the mountains and and like elves and fairies would visit you to deliver your milk. And then the other big winner for us turned out to be Chicago. I had no idea what Chicago was like. Um, you know, I was excited to visit because I'd never been. It was a big city I hadn't been to. And we went to very, very few big cities, as, as you just heard. And so we ended up spending about three hours in Chicago. And I'm pretty much convinced I want to live there now. Like, I, I'm ready to move. So what I would like to hear from you is if you uh, live in Chicago, ever have lived in Chicago, or have any firsthand knowledge about Chicago, A, if you like it, write in and let me know and b if there are things that i don't know about the city that i should know and should consider before uh jumping ship and moving out there let me know i've been talking to people about chicago for about a week and no one has had anything bad to say about it yet so i i have to get some negative feedback about chicago soon or i don't know how i'll be able to resist just packing up and heading out there so that's it for today and that was the big recap of the big trip you can uh, relive the entire experience via all of my twitter tweets which included uh for the most part included uh links to a google map to where we were at the time that the link was posted uh, as well as pictures we took along the way so lots of good stuff there so stay connected with us as i say on twitter and facebook and with our newsletter 
Get the show directly on your smartphone without having to sync at Stitcher.com. Visit our show notes on the blog to find out links to all of our sources and the music used in this show. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every weekend, every Wednesday, from thebestoftheleft.com. Just a fun friend.